Here, I'll just close it. There you go. Roll it. Well, I want to bring you folks greetings from the church in Grand Prairie. Um, we are delighted in what God has been doing in our midst. Um, there's about regularly 70 to 75 people gathering. We count about 90 as our own. And uh, we're just delighted with our new pastor, Nathan Zeckveld. We feel like we really hit a home run. And uh, so our, uh, I bring you greetings from our church up there. I'd like to preach to you today from the passage in the scripture where Jesus comes to John to be baptized. The sermon is titled, My Beloved Son. Hear now the beloved and excellent gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is Lord. This Jesus who lived from all eternity together with God the Father and the Holy Spirit, who was sent by the Father into this world as a baby to fulfill his promises to Israel, who lived and suffered and died for us, who was buried in a tomb and who rose again to new life, who showed himself to many people after he was risen, and who rose up into the heavens and sat down at the right hand of the Father, who sent the Spirit to indwell us. This Jesus is Lord. The saying, Jesus is Lord, means that he's the Messiah of Israel. He's the one who was promised in the Old Testament scriptures who would come and reign on David's throne over Israel. And his reign would extend beyond the borders of the promised land. So he would reign from the river to the ends of the earth, it says in Psalm 72. The good news of the reign of Christ is depicted in Ezekiel 47 as a river of water flowing out from under the threshold of the temple and out into the lands beyond. And all the places touched by that water were transformed and made alive and made to flourish. Thus it is with the good news of Jesus, because he reigns, people flourish. God the Son, the King, loves people. He loves them. And he sends us out, us his people, he sends us out into a world to proclaim this to folks who are terrified and made crazy by a fear of a disease, that their fears can be taken away in, by King Jesus, and that their crazy can be reshaped into faithful good sense by worshiping God aright every week when he calls us and walking daily in the God-honoring culture of his church. You know, that's what we're doing here. If you're not aware, we are worshiping our way towards sanity. When Jesus spoke to Matthew, uh, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, to Peter... 
he said, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He used a word for church that was not normally used when talking about a religious gathering. He could have said synagogue, he could have said tabernacle or temple, but instead he used the word ecclesia. I will build my ecclesia, he said, which was a political term. It was a political term well known by his hearers as a gathering of local Roman citizens from their homes to get together and make rules and laws and to set the agenda for how the local culture would function. An ecclesia was given its power by Rome and was intended to promote the desires of Rome wherever it was gathered. This is what Jesus had in mind by using that word ecclesia. For you are a people called out from the comfort of your homes to gather together to worship before the king of everything. We have his ear. We have the Holy Spirit indwelling us. We talk together. We plan. We strategize for the sake of the kingdom of God. We tell him the things that we see that need moving, and he listens to our prayers, and he acts on our behalf. And we seek by the Spirit to implement the culture of heaven here, in this place where we live, because we work toward that for which we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The good news for the world is that Jesus is now the king. He reigns and rules over heaven and earth, having been given all authority in heaven and on earth, and having been, having been given a name which is above every name. Every authority on earth owes their allegiance to King Jesus. And Jesus is so much better of a lord than Caesar ever was. You know, the coinage from the era of the Caesars proclaimed that Caesar was Lord and God, and that there was no other name given among men that surpassed the name of Caesar. When the church started to proclaim Jesus as Lord, they were making an overtly political statement. The world has a new king. And this king grants forgiveness of sins to those who ask for it. He grants pardon to those who have opposed him but who promise to do so no longer. An earthly king might, might forgive you your debt if you owed him money, but being a debtor is not the worst of your problems. You have a sin problem, one that's internal. And no king but this one can forgive sins, but Jesus, the king, does it. He can be trusted, and he wants you to trust him, to believe him, to show allegiance, loyalty to him as your true king. From Matthew chapter 3, Then Jesus came from Galilee to, to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John the baptizer 
was Jesus' second cousin. I figured that out. I, I thought he was a cousin once removed, but he's actually a second cousin. <clears throat> His mother Mary was cousin to John's mother, Elizabeth. And the next generation are still cousins, but second, one generation down. Now, it does not appear that they grew up together, for John lived in the hill country of Judea, in the southern part of the land, while Jesus lived in Nazareth of Galilee, a city in the northern part of Israel, about a three or four day journey from Judea. The hill country of Judah was near an area called the Wilderness of Judea, where John stayed for a long time, we're told, until his active ministry began. Jesus went to Jerusalem with his parents when he was 12. Perhaps they would have met John there, a young fellow like Jesus who probably went up to the temple at that time for the same reason as Jesus, but we're not told if such a meeting happened. John later testified that he did not know Jesus, but that God had told him how to identify him. Jesus' reputation, however, would have been drilled into John's consciousness from infancy. The not-yet-born infant John had leaped in his mother's womb when Mary came to visit her. If you remember, Jesus had barely begun to form inside of Mary, still early in her pregnancy. But John had recognized him just the same, the first one to do so. His mother Elizabeth was provoked by this into a prophetic word, one which has become part of the story of the coming of Jesus. John surely would have been told by his mother <clears throat> the prophetic words spoken over both him and over Jesus, that the mother of my Lord should come to me, she said. Jesus was the Lord. Now John knew that El Shaddai was the Lord who makes promises. He knew that Yahweh was the Lord who keeps promises. But here his young cousin had been given a title belonging to God alone, and his blameless mother had been the one applying that title to Jesus. So a connection must have formed in the mind of John that associated Jesus with the Messiah the one for whom he, John, was preparing the way. In the Gospel of John, we learn that John the baptizer was working at a place called Bethany, which was across the Jordan, it says, not on the Israel side of the Jordan, of the river, but of, on the far side of the river. This is significant on a symbolic level, for Matthew has already shown us how the Israel of Jesus' day had become another Egypt. Think about Herod and trying to destroy the child. That sounds familiar if you're familiar with the story of the Exodus. <clears throat> but Matthew had said, uh, had spoken of Israel as a place from which the people of God needed an Exodus. When the prophet comes to the Jordan River to baptize people, he does so on the east side of the river. 
Israelites coming to John for baptism from Judea would have to cross the Jordan and be granted access back in to Israel through baptism. Israel needed to repent and to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And with John, they were reenacting, as it were, Israel's first entry into the land, but this time bearing God's sign and with turning from sin as their battle cry. It was not enough to have Abraham's blood in their veins. They needed Abraham's faith as well. When Jesus came to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him, John objected. He said, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me? John was baptizing folks for repentance as a sure or as a sign that they were going to behave better now, to turn from doing evil. But Jesus was not in need of such repentance. He did not practice any evil from which he could turn. So why did he receive John's baptism? I think there are several things going on here, and I want to explore some of them. I hope to explain to you what I see. You know, you can search through the Old Testament thoroughly and search in vain to find some place that tells you that the Messiah being baptized for the remission of sins is a thing that would fulfill righteousness. So it's not a matter of finding chapter and verse. Something else must be going on here. One approach is to say that Jesus is here identifying in every way with his people. He has come to take their sin upon himself. He, he has come to take their sin upon himself in his body on that tree. And here Jesus identifies with us sinners going through the motions as it were to show us that he was one of us, fully human as we are. Now there are some things to commend this way of thinking. For Jesus is indeed fully man and he could be doing this for our benefit that we might be drawn closer to him. He did after all come into the world for our benefit, to save us and to restore us to fellowship with God. This could be the way, be a way of relating to our situation in such a way as to say that he does not reject us, but rather enters into our weakness. I do not think, though, that this is primary. How does this fulfill all righteousness? especially in a way John would instantly recognize when Jesus said it. There has to be more to this. Psalm 110, verse 4, says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Excuse me. Jesus was descended not from the tribe of Levi, with the priestly tribe, but rather from the kingly tribe, from Judah. But Jesus is spoken of in the book of Hebrews as our high priest. Listen to Hebrews chapter 7, starting at verse 11. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest? 
to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron. For when there is a change in priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe, from one which no one has ever served at the altar. For it's evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses says nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, the former commandment is set aside because its weakness of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. Still reading in in Hebrews chapter 7. And it was not without an oath. For those who were formerly who formerly became priests were made such without an oath, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting, says Hebrews, that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separate from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the other people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Long passage in Hebrews, but it all speaks to this. Jesus was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And as such, he is able to intercede for us in a priestly way with a priesthood that will never end. He serves now in this capacity. But when did this service begin? For priests in the Old Testament, priestly service began when the priest was 30 years old. Jesus was 30 years old when he was baptized. When a high priest was ordained, the first thing done to him was to wash him with water. Numbers 29, verse 1. At the beginning of Jesus' ministry, first thing, Jesus was washed with water. Early on in his ministry, he cleansed the temple. Remember that? With his whip of cords, he cleansed it. That's priestly language with his homemade whip. That was the job of the anointed priests. 
to look after such matters. In Leviticus uh, chapter 14, there's a, there's a chapter in there with some weird and strange stuff, or it seems so to us. Uh, it's the part about the house that gets leprosy. Remember that? <clears throat> if a house has signs of leprosy in it, the priest was supposed to come along, if you remember. He was to inspect it, and if it proved to be so, he was to put the house under quarantine for a week, during which time he, the priest, would scrub the walls. When he came back a week later to inspect it, if the red and green stuff on the walls had spread, he was to quarantine the house for another week. But this time he would take out whatever walls had the stuff on them and rebuild the walls. And if when he came to inspect it a third time, if the red and green had spread in the house, he was to tear that house down and drag all its beams and stones out of the city to an unclean place. And not one stone was to be left on another. Jesus cleansed the temple not once. First time he did it early in his ministry, just after his first miracle in John chapter 2. He went through the house and fixed stuff up, and he waited. He did it a second time, shortly before his arrest and crucifixion in Matthew chapter 21. He fixed stuff up again, and he waited. And he promised to Jerusalem in chapter 23 of Matthew that her house would be left to her desolate. Listen, oh Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? I say to you, there will not be left here one stone on another that will not be thrown down. Jesus went on from there to tell them of all kinds of signs that would happen, wars and rumors of wars, the Son of Man coming on the clouds, and he assured his disciples that all this would happen to the generation that was hearing him speak these words. And it did happen in that generation. The next time he, the priest, came to inspect if she'd not repented, she would be torn down, and not one stone would be left on another. And this happened in 70 AD, when he came on the clouds, and the temple was destroyed, and Jerusalem was ravaged. But what I want you to see now is the priestly role that Jesus was taking in doing this task. Where did he get authority to do this? I would submit that Jesus' baptism by John 
in the Jordan was his ordination to the priesthood. Remember Jesus' question later on, which so confounded the Pharisees. They were asking him about where he got the authority to behave like he did. And he responded with this question about John and about authority. I have a question for you, he responded. The baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from men? And the Pharisees, of course, were on the horns of a dilemma and they couldn't answer. And Jesus said, well, he wouldn't tell them where his authority came from either. But notice, in this question, Jesus implicitly tied his own authority back to the baptism of John. It was not just a random question. Those two things were tied together. The Pharisees rejected the authority of both John and Jesus, but Jesus knew them both to be good. And Jesus, not wishing to cast his pearls before swine, refused to tell them so. A third possibility about Jesus and John's conversation, which led to Jesus' baptism, is this. Both John and Jesus recognized themselves in the pages of Scripture. that called to fulfill specific roles. John was certain of himself that he was the one, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. He was the one that Isaiah had foretold to come and prepare the way for the Messiah. He was the forerunner. And Jesus knew what he was here for. The Old Testament scriptures testified of him, he said, from start to finish. He was the coming king. He was the great high priest. He was the prophet to surpass them all. He was the better Israel. And he would bring about the day when the kingdom of God would be made manifest in the world. So John was the last and greatest of the old covenant prophets. And Jesus was bringing in the new covenant. I think John's attention may have been caught by Jesus' words. Thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. For us. You and me, John. This was a thing which Old Covenant John and New Covenant Jesus needed to do together. A transition point from one administration to the next. One that would make things right. He must increase and I must decrease, John said. In Luke chapter 7... We are given a note, almost as an aside, that says this. When all the people heard this, and the tax collectors too, they declared God just, having been baptized by the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purposes of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. There's something about the purposes of God that was connected to John's baptism. It was certainly God's purpose for Israel that she should repent, but it was also God's purpose for Jesus that he take up the office of high priest after the order of Melchizedek. 
John's baptism affected a lot of things for the purposes of God. When Jesus said it, John caught on right away. For John knew that something great was going to happen through Jesus. He consented and Jesus was baptized. When Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. When Jesus was baptized, the whole family was in attendance, as it were. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, saw the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, descending like a dove and resting upon him, while the Father, the first person of the Trinity, spoke from heaven. Words of identification, words of love, of familial relation, and of delight. These three who dwelt together in eternity past, who planned the world and all its inhabitants together, who purposed together to rescue men from their sin in this way, all came together at Jesus' baptism. And in such a way that it was visible and audible for those around him, around them. This was clearly an important event. Something big was affected here, set into motion. In the flood story of Genesis 8, Noah, if you remember, sent out a dove. She at first found no place to set her foot, so she returned to Noah in the ark. And the second time she went out, a week later, she returned with a freshly plucked olive leaf. And the third time he sent her out, after seven more days, she did not return to him. And by this, Noah knew that he could leave the ark and re-enter the world. The dove told him, not yet, almost now. You know, in the law, a provision was made for the poor among God's people, that if they were not well off enough to afford a lamb for a sin offering to God, they could bring two doves, and that would be sufficient. Those doves allowed you access to having your sins covered, even if you were poor. The Holy Spirit came upon Jesus in the form of a dove. And these are things God wants us to think on when we consider this happening. The dove came to rest on Jesus. Couldn't find rest. First time Noah sent it out. First inspection, not yet. Second inspection, he goes out a week later. There's an olive leaf. Olives. Oil. Oil is the sign of the Spirit. Almost. Third inspection, Noah's dove flies off into the world and the new world has begun. And here, the dove comes to rest upon the one in whom the new world has begun. 
and he's come for rich and poor alike. Nobody is so low that the Spirit cannot meet him. And the voice from heaven spoke, first to identify the beloved, this is my beloved son, not somebody else, this. Secondly, he expressed love and had ownership in him. This is my beloved. Thirdly, he expressed family relations. This is my beloved son. And fourthly, he expressed his current delight in him, in whom I am well pleased. This voice came from the Father in heaven who spoke to his son in this way, or of his son. Now perhaps you are or are not skilled at professing love to your beloved or to your children or to your siblings. God spoke here to his son and he loves to be imitated in such ways. You try this at home. Speak to your beloved. Call them by their name. Call them by their station. Express to them how pleased you are with them. Maybe pick some specific thing about them which pleases you and express to them your delight in them about this thing. It is a wonderful thing to hear from God and from those trying to imitate him in ways that he approves. (laughs) You know, Jesus' baptism says something about our baptisms as well. And what they are for and what they mean, we're baptized into Christ And though it means union with him and a putting off of our old life and a putting on of the new one, in other words, repentance, it also inducts us, as it were, into a new priesthood, into a royal priesthood, that we might be palace servants in his temple, that we might proclaim his praises to the world, that we might be active in his service in everything. May God grant you much joy in believing him and may you find ways by his spirit to be effective and valuable for the sake of the kingdom of God this week. Seek Jesus the King and may you find great delight in him as you pursue him. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.